This is episode 35. You're listening to the All Hazards Podcast, where we take you behind the scenes to give you exclusive access to emergency managers who've been on the front lines of some of the nation's most difficult challenges. Where we have candid conversations about the challenges facing all emergency managers, no matter how big or small the community. Here's your host, Sean Boyd. Hello and welcome. So glad to have you along with us this time. In this episode, we head to the city of Dublin, California, and the Alameda County Office of Homeland Security and Emergency Services. We chat with Captain Pace Stokes, who was OES Deputy Incident Commander for the annual Urban Shield exercise. Captain Stokes was just about to head out for some rest, some much needed rest, after a long day of preparation for the exercise that involves 63 sites across five Bay Area counties. So what does it take for a successful training exercise to pull one of those off, one of that scope? Well, find out right now. So as mentioned, we are here in Alameda County with Captain Pace Stokes of the Alameda County Sheriff's Office. Captain, thanks for being here. Thank you. Actually, thanks for letting us be here. This is your home away from home. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, so we are here in the Emergency Operations Center of Alameda County, right? That's correct. So I'm looking at this place, and it looks like a little mini-me for the State Operations Center. Have you ever been to the Mather? I haven't, and you're absolutely right. It's sort of a mini-me, isn't it? It's pretty nice, though. This is really nice. Um, it, it's a fairly new facility as well. Uh, it's actually built in 1995. It's maintained very well. It, it is. And we've, we've done some updating, and we're continuing to do Modernization. modernization to make sure that you guys are able to do the important work that you do here. Absolutely. So we're here to talk about uh, Urban Shield, but for me, I'm also wanting to know a little bit more about you. So let's give everybody a thumbnail sketch about, about your career. How did you get into law enforcement and how did you end up here? <laughs> so my dad was a police officer growing up, had nothing to do with me joining law enforcement. Okay. <laughs> something I was specifically interested in. I had done odd jobs here and there. I was a restaurant manager at a couple of different restaurants, and uh, I had a neighbor who worked for the Alameda County Sheriff's Office, and he recruited me, and I came over in uh, 1997. I started as a sheriff's technician over at Santa Rita Jail right next door. Yeah, I saw that out there. It's, uh, it's kind of convenient to have that right next door. It is right next door, and it is convenient because uh, in a disaster, they will feed us. Ah, excellent. Yes, I see the logic there. So tell me a little bit about Urban Shield and its purpose. So the purpose of Urban Shield really is to prepare our first responders and emergency managers to respond in the case of uh, disaster, natural or man-made. And that's the goal, that's the purpose, and, and the exercise is based around that. And the exercise uh, is taking place primarily here in the Bay Area, correct? Okay, and this is an annual thing. Correct. You were talking a little bit earlier uh, before we started rolling on this. You were talking about how this is a, a very competitive event, training exercise. Why the competition element? Sure. So for the law enforcement fire and fire components, um, we make it a competition. We found that through competition, the participants 
try harder and get more out of the exercise. Um, we've seen many other good exercises that were well put on and well hosted, but the participants didn't necessarily give it their all a little lackadaisical. Mm-hmm. And uh, we found that that's not the case with Urban Shield. You add that competitive component, they want to be better than the, the, the person before them or the person after them. And so they try a little bit harder and they get a little bit more out of it. So do they get bragging rights or a little bit more than that? They definitely get bragging rights, but uh, more than that, they get great training. I am the deputy incident commander this year for Urban Shield, uh, which will make me the incident commander for Urban Shield next year. So as deputy incident commander for Urban Shield this year, what gives you the preparation for taking on such what sounds to me like a, a big responsibility? Has it taken your entire career to prepare for that? Is it experience? To some extent, you could say that. I mean, yeah. I mean, there really is, when it comes to managing um, a large training exercise like this, or really uh, even a response to uh, a large event, a lot of the success comes down to people that you have met, relationships that you've built and established, and uh, we do that with Urban Shield, but I've done that throughout my career. So those individuals that I've established relationships with, either inside our agency or outside the agency, certainly will play a component in uh, responding to a disaster or assisting with Urban Shield. And so uh, I suppose you could say it's taken a career to uh, prepare for this. But really, as as the the years have progressed, I would say the more specific preparation has been my previous assignments in Urban Shield. Um, And so I was the EOC chief, so I ran the Emergency Operations Center during Urban Shield for the last four years. Uh, But I also assisted with our Yellow Command, which is our our emergency management component. And so I don't know that anyone really feels fully prepared and ready to be the incident commander for Urban Shield. And uh, we certainly will not be successful without the help of hundreds and hundreds of others. It, the, the Urban Urban Shield Incident Commander simply is the uh, orchestrator, if you will, or the or the, the music director. There's there's a whole symphony behind him or her that really makes the whole thing run. That's right. Like uh, if you're talking about folks like Arthur Fiedler, remember from the Boston Pops, Arthur Fiedler was the man. But these conductors. To stick with that analogy, these conductors know music. They can read it, they can write it, they can compose it. So for someone like you or anybody else who has been in this position as a deputy incident commander or later next year as the incident commander, you have to be able to read, write, and compose just like those other folks do. And that's where your experience comes in. So I want to talk about that experience. As this training exercise gears up. It begins as of this recording tomorrow. As this thing is gearing up, what is going through your mind as the deputy incident commander? What are some of the things that you need to make sure that you've done in order to make sure this whole thing goes off without a hitch? Well, we need everyone in their place. We know all the equipment uh, where it needs to be, and that all took place today. A lot going on today, then. There is a lot going on today. I was on the phone for probably four hours today, trying to 
put out fires and mm. solve problems and uh, resolve issues. Uh, nothing ever goes <laughs> smoothly with these type of events. Mm -hmm. We've got 63 sites that we'll be exercising. One of those sites exercised yesterday. That was our emergency management component. The other 62 sites will be exercising tomorrow. So all of those components need to be in place before 0500 tomorrow morning. And that 500 hour does come fast when you've got so much to do. Oh man, you think you're going to get any sleep tonight? I should sleep okay tonight. Yeah. I don't work until midnight or the midnight shift tomorrow. So oh. I'll come back in until uh, 1700 hours. There you go. Uh, our incident commander, who will be the day shift uh, incident commander tomorrow, he probably will sleep for a All right. There's more on the way, including a catastrophic event in the Bay Area, one that quickly rose to the top of Captain Stokes' list of career challenges. We continue our conversation talking about a notorious Oakland warehouse fire on December 2nd, 2016, one that killed 36 people. Is there one particular event that stands out in your mind as one that was particularly challenging for you? We're talking an event? Yes, the ghost ship fire in Oakland. Oh, and that was just recently? That was in December of last year. Right. What was your role in that? So my primary role was to manage the Family Assistance Center, but I had a lot of equipment and personnel at the fire site as well. So I really went back and forth between the two. And actually, I spent more time at the command post at the fire site than I did at the Family Assistance Center. Mm. But uh, really, it was to manage the personnel and to be the liaison with uh, the city. So what was the challenge? Well, anytime you're working in a unified command, it can be challenging because you don't necessarily uh, make all the decisions. And, and in my case, there was another captain involved as well as our commander. So um, I was just one of the managers who was there to oversee the response and uh, the assistance that we were providing to the families. So on top of the, 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 the size and scope of this tragedy, you were having to deal with family and friends who were obviously distraught over what was going on but at the same time you're having to focus on the task at hand for you and that could be many what was what was the most difficult part of that so we all have the same goal and that was to get to those fire victims and to identify them as quickly as possible and notify the family so that they could have closure the means to achieve that end were not always necessarily agreed upon by all parties and so in order to work in that unified command we had to come to a consensus for the most part now we we definitely had our specific roles and depending on the role those individuals or those units could act unilaterally is probably not necessarily the right word but uh, they could act um, based on what they felt was most appropriate given that set of circumstances. For instance, I'm not going to tell the coroner's bureau how to recover a body. So they had carte blanche to perform in their roles. But when it came to communication with the media, with the families, 
what gets released, when it gets released. Some of the challenges that we had, especially at the Family Assistance Center, was ensuring, because we had promised the families, and it was the right thing to do, that they would never hear something for the first time on the news. Mm -hmm. We would always brief them before the news media was briefed. And sometimes that was very challenging. Sometimes it was minutes before they saw it on the news. But I believe we were very successful at that. And when I say we, this is a team effort. And some of those things I had little, if any, direct role in. And, and others I did have a hand in. But, again, the whole thing was a team effort. And uh, it, it was just challenging to get all of those moving parts working together at the same time going in the same direction when, again, you've got the, the debris removal, you've got the body recovery, you've got the then the, the coroner identification and the notification of the families. And there were rallies that, uh, that the family or families were holding that people wanted to be to. And some of, the, some of those times we knew that uh, there was a likely identification of their loved one. And some of those family wanted to leave and we did not want them to leave, but we couldn't tell them why we didn't want them to leave. And so it was, it was very difficult to, because they needed to hear it the right way at the right time from the right person. So we had to be very careful with what we were able to tell them. And it wasn't always confirmed to us. There was a lot of times where um, the coroner's bureau would come out and they would still have to interview the family to get more definitive mm. information. So I couldn't blurt out, hey, we think we have identified your loved one. Please don't leave, because that may not be the case. Right. You don't want to send those those survivors through this roller coaster of emotions, even though they're already on that roller coaster. What was the response from those family members when they understood what you were doing? Well, they were very appreciative of that. Everyone deals with tragedy differently. You know, we had some people that were very, very upset and some people that were, uh, actually there were several families who were empathetic to our position. Really? Having, having to, you know, that, that they could see that it was emotional for their first responders as well. Mm-hmm. And so everyone reacted slightly differently. Yeah, I can understand. And so, again, there were some that were very appreciative, others that were very upset, felt they should be getting something slightly different. But that was okay to us. Yeah. Because, again, they're all grieving in a different way. But the overwhelming majority were very, very appreciative of the way that they were treated and the fact that they were given this information in advance and that we did it in a respectful and dignified manner. And we had lots of resources available to them. We had chaplains and counselors. Uh, we had the Red Cross there with us and their chaplains as well. And uh, our behavioral health care uh, personnel were there uh, as grief counselors. So we had a lot of resources for the families if they needed it. Some, some utilized the services, some did not. What about the officers on scene? What about you? As you're looking at this event, you know, you're looking at the aftermath of this thing. I can't imagine what that must have looked like in person. We saw it on the news. What were your sort of gut reactions when you saw the images, when you first got on scene and you saw the damage? Well, it was clearly a horrific event. Um, 
Yeah. And I knew that there were many, many families that were going to be devastated. Right. When I first arrived on scene, I believe the first place that I went was up on the roof mm. of the adjacent building to get a bird's eye view, if you will, of the, the warehouse. Mm -hmm. And from that vantage point, I could see six or seven victims. Mm. And just knowing, number one, what they had gone through in the last moments of their life, but also what their loved ones were going through. And at that point, their loved ones, in many cases, knew that they were in the building, but didn't know where they were. And in some cases, we had people that weren't sure if their loved ones were in the building, but they didn't, couldn't got, could not get a hold of their loved ones. And so um, we knew that this was going to be big and uh, that it was going to be challenging and difficult for the families, but for the first responders as well. A tragedy like the ghost ship fire took its toll on first responders too. So what steps can they take to try to move past what they saw? Well, here's Captain Stokes with more on the ghost ship fire. All of this help was out there for the families. What about you guys? Did you have to rely on any of that help, whether it was at the time or later? Because that's not an easy thing for anyone to view. Even if you are in law enforcement, that's, that's not an easy thing to go through. Sure. So uh, just today, I spoke to someone about the Goshen Warehouse fire, who was uh, one of the responders. Mm. Because for Urban Shield, one of the training seminars was uh, a debrief on the fire. Mm. The individual I spoke to is, is still uh, very much affected by the things that they saw, even though they're doing their best to not be. Right. And their staff have been as well. And so. It, it is difficult, and uh, for many people it's not easy to let go of those feelings and to move past that. As an agency, every member of our agency who responded to the ghost ship fire was strongly encouraged to attend a peer counseling debrief. Right. And the vast majority, if not all, did attend that debrief. Mm. And that was, was very good for them to be able to talk about some of their experiences and to share some of their feelings and get yeah. the emotions out, let the emotions out. For sure. The very first podcast I did for All Hazards was with the commander of the SWAT unit who was on scene at the San Isidro McDonald's massacre. And he, as the commander of the SWAT team, had to give the the go-ahead to take the, the perpetrator down when they had the opportunity, and they did. That wasn't the hard part for him to get over. The hard part was going down to the building and, and walking among the victims, and it was a horrific scene. The one thing that he said was they had offered up that kind of help to any and all of the people who were on scene, all of the officers, everybody. And he doesn't know how many of them took them up on it, but they, like you, urged strongly for them to talk about it and to get that, that help. He said that when he went home that night, he had the visions of these children who were 
killed um, in his mind. And he, of course, he sat down on his daughter's bed and it was very late. She was already asleep and he did what any father would do, and that is go hug their kids. But he said he couldn't go buy a McDonald's and he hasn't eaten at a McDonald's once since then. And he says he can't even smell it. He said when he goes by a McDonald's, he doesn't even want to smell the cooking because that's what it smelled like that day. So as strong as you are, as well-trained as you are, regardless of all the training, regardless of how strong you think you may be, that you still need to talk about it. You still need to get that help. Is that safe to say? Absolutely. Yeah. And the way that, that I really appreciated the way that our peer counselors did it. It was not a one-on-one -on -one, uh, talking to a counselor, mm. if you will. I don't know that we would have had many people do that type of, of debrief, mm. a one-on-one. -on -one. But it was done in, in group session, and it was broken down into your role during the response. So the managers all met as a group, and then those that responded to the fire scene that were not managers met as a group, and then those that worked at the coroner's bureau and did the body identifications met as a group so that they could express the feelings and their experiences that they have that others can relate to and could then also chime in and talk about their feelings. Uh, and again, the managers met totally separately so that the line staff felt that they could be as open as they needed to be or wanted to be. Some were more open than others. Some people prefer to hold it in. Others need to let it out and, and everybody copes with those things in different ways. Yeah. Is there something that you would uh, advise anyone out there, anyone who may have been involved in some kind of traumatic disaster? And I'm going to call that a disaster, right? I mean, safe to say, sure. yeah, that's a dis people died, that is a disaster for sure. Is there anything that you'd like to, to tell someone or urge someone or share with them something that you learned from that whole experience? I don't know if this is the answer that you're looking for, but as a manager, I'll tell you a few things that I learned. Uh, one in particular mistake that I made that I felt adversely affected our staff. Mm. And that was that we had staff that were in the building, removing the debris, handling the bodies, or at least viewing the bodies. And, and in a close and intimate as they're removing debris to be able to uh, recover the victims or to allow the coroner's bureau to recover those victims. The family wanted to be able to view the disaster site. The news was right at the end of the block. They were closer than the family was able to get because of the, the scene security. So we set up a tent across the street where the family could be protected the best we could from the media and be able to view the site where their loved one was lost. This was really kind of a haphazard thing. So the family had requested it. We felt it was more than a reasonable request, something that we could and should accommodate. And so we went and got a van and assigned the first staff member that was available and that staff member was one of the ones that had worked in the building and closely um, with the victims. Mm -hmm. And now we've put that staff member in a position where he is dealing with the emotions of the family 
and the family of victims whom he saw and and uh, dealt with in the fire. And that was an unfair position to put him in and uh, and caused him some challenges. And there were, there were a couple like that, uh, similar type situations where when you are on the scene and dealing with the victim and then later interacting with the family, it really makes it personal and really makes it difficult to move on afterwards. And so that's definitely something that I learned to ensure that it doesn't happen to the, the, the best, you know, I can. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that I would suggest to others to avoid if possible. Yeah, I couldn't imagine being in either position for that matter. So as a manager, you have, uh, you have to think of a lot of different things and take into consideration a lot of different things. I don't know how anyone would have even thought of that ahead of time, especially, you know, the person is given the assignment. You would almost think that that person would have said, well, you know, I've been inside. Is that, you know, really the best thing for me to do? But if they're doing their job, they want to perform to the best of their ability. As a first responder, we do what we're asked to do. Right. right? So mm-hmm. when they were asked to go and perform that, I don't think they thought thought it through either. Mm. How it might impact them. As far as they knew, they were a driver to transport a family over to see the building. I, I don't think they anticipated the conversation that would take place to and from while in, in those intimate quarters with the family. Right. So the efforts put forth by first responders during their call to action certainly didn't go unnoticed by the families who stood by, watching, and waiting. A sweet moment that caught a tough law enforcement officer a little off guard, who then realized who the real heroes were that day. Captain Stokes continues. Tell me something you learned from someone that was unexpected. What comes to mind is kind of a funny story um, and related to Ghost Ship. And I'm sure you're aware of the constant banter and teasing between law enforcement and firefighters. Oh, for sure. So I was leaving from the Ghost Ship fire, and the neighborhood is closed off. But one of the fire stations, in fact, the, the station for the firefighters who um, were the initial responders to the ghost ship was within that closed off area. As soon as I left the area, a woman and her child flagged me down and said, hey, we have some goodies to give to the firefighters. Will you help us get in there to see them? So I took them into the secure area to go and deliver these goodies to the firefighters. And uh, they delivered the cookies, they took pictures of the firefighters, they didn't ask for pictures with me. Uh, the firefighters were the heroes. Of course. That, that was okay. I was okay with that. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, I, I just, I thought that was funny. A little ironic. You know, I certainly didn't have the same job they did. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were absolutely deserving of the recognition and the praise. But I just thought it kind of ironic and funny that, you know, we, we, we talk about heroes and who are the true heroes. And, and, and I'll give it to them on that day at least. That's right. The firefighters were the heroes. So wait until you get them out on the gridiron, right? That's right. <laughs> well, and kids know best at that moment. You know, the kids know best. They, you know, it's what matters to the kids, I think, more than anything. Sure. You know? 
Well, listen, I appreciate you taking the time. And I know this time has gone by very fast for me. I can't believe it. Well, congratulations on all of your success so far. Enjoy the rest and uh, try to find those, those good moments with the little kids and, you know, no more ghost ships. And let's uh, hope that your training goes over well tomorrow. Absolutely. Thanks. Ah, there's always been a bit of healthy competition between fire and law enforcement, and just a twinge of it appeared to surface when that little girl wanted to bring the firefighter some treats that day. Perfect. Well, we archive all of our episodes at oesnews.com. Just go there, click on the podcast tab, and feel free to peruse past episodes. We've had a lot of great guests, all of whom contributed great knowledge and stories. Of course, you can get all of those easily by subscribing at the iTunes Store and Google Play for the All Hazards podcast. Hey, thanks for listening again, and we do appreciate you taking the time to listen. So take care and be safe. You've been listening to the Cal OES All Hazards podcast. Don't forget to check out our podcast page where you can find past episodes along with show notes and links. And give us a social shout out. Tell others about us on Twitter and Facebook. And let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you.